0: In a world of micro-targeting where you could get down to very narrow slices of the electorate, there's much less accountability and publicity built into the process by its very nature. And I think that when pressed, this is the big concern, the idea that very small slices of the public would see very incendiary or false information that was geared specifically to them in ways that would never make it to a broader public light of day by virtue of the medium itself.
1: I'm Quinta Juresik, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 27th, 2020. This week on Lawfare's Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation, Evelyn Duak and I spoke with Bridget Barrett and Daniel Kreese, of the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media, and UNC's Center for Information, Technology, and Public Life. In all the controversy around social media platforms at the moment, perhaps nothing is taking up as much oxygen as their policies around political ads. But it's difficult to discuss this topic without a detailed understanding of what the platforms are actually doing. That's where Bridget and Daniel come in. They've worked to provide a comprehensive account of the different policies in this space, how those policies interact, and how they're changing, or not, the way we interact with politics. This discussion about ad policy has taken on a new urgency in recent weeks, as Michael Bloomberg's presidential campaign has blanketed social media platforms with ads and sponsored content. And though we recorded this conversation before Bloomberg's ad blitz really got off the ground, it's useful background for understanding what's going on. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 514. Bridget Barrett and Daniel Kreese on The Chaos of Social Media Advertising. Bridget and Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. So the the reason we wanted to have you on the podcast is you're doing some of the most thorough and grounded empirical work about what's really going on with platform ad policies. Um, I think our listeners may have noticed that there's a bit of a debate right now about what social platforms should do about political advertising, but a lot of that debate tends to take place at a very high level. And what is great about your work is it really connects it to the facts on the ground. Um, so we'd love to dig into that. Before we do that, though, I wanted to just start with the most basic question. Why are platform advertising policies important?
0: What you've seen over the last decade uh, or so are platform companies, and in particular, Facebook and Google and and their assorted Um, holdings basically capture a large uh, slice of the digital advertising revenue more broadly. And in politics, that means that Facebook and Instagram, Google and YouTube really come to dominate the political advertising space online. And what we've seen is that over time, a greater proportion of campaigns are spending their budget on digital advertising as opposed to television advertising. So, Campaigns still generally tend to spend more on TV, but the share of digital is is growing. So that means that the rules that Facebook and Google and to a lesser extent companies like Snapchat and Twitter and Reddit sort of set forth end up governing a lot of the ways that paid political speech works in the United States. And we expect that over time that will only grow in importance Um, Because we just looking at the trend lines, we expect that digital advertising will only increase and it will be likely that Facebook and Google and their assorted properties will just continue to dominate in this space.
2: Awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about the um, Platform Political Ad Comparison project that you've been working on through the Center for Information Technology and Public Life at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill? What is that project and what led you to undertake it?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So the platform comparison is kind of part of a bigger initiative to understand social media platforms involvement in electoral politics and as well as government. So we've done a comparison of their policies, as well as comparison of their basic targeting capabilities within the platforms, and then a little bit of work on comparing the ad archives of Facebook, Google and Twitter Uh, for Twitter. That was before they banned political advertising. Uh, Part of this is just getting a better view of what's actually possible on the ground and documenting the state of play. It was also about seeing how Facebook would get a lot of flack for what it was doing and its rules. But we wanted to have a better idea of how those rules actually compared to what's possible and what's allowed on other platforms uh, to see where else people are doing things differently and, and where it's the same and as you'll see from the policies there is a decent bit of differences in how the platforms are now treating political ads with the you know biggest difference being between Twitter who, which is trying to ban all political advertising and Facebook who's really got a much more laissez faire approach and letting most things run. And when I started, when we started this research, uh, it was all of the explanations of what was going on and what was possible and what the policies were, were really spread out across help center and support page answers, like frequently asked question pages, some stuff on the ads policies pages, but also in community guidelines, blogs and training videos, and then also just in media coverage. So one thing that was both nice and troubling as I did this, a lot of this research was that as the platforms were getting pressured to make changes the information started to condense onto the policy pages, but we're also just seeing um, a lot of other information kind of become outdated rather quickly.
2: Can I ask, you're absolutely right that the conversation around Facebook totally dominates this conversation. After having done the project, you noticed a lot of differences between the platforms, I mean, particularly Facebook and Twitter, but I mean, do you think that Facebook dominates because of those differences? I mean, particularly, I guess, against YouTube and Google, or is it more that they're particularly salient, or is it something to do with how much of the market share that they have, for example?
3: It's definitely the market share. No, that's that's 100% correct, that they dominate the conversation because they are one of the most important players, or the most important player. Um between them and, and Google, it's right up there. And, and just to be clear, when we talk about Facebook, Facebook's advertising platform, uh, when you run through Facebook, you are in the same interface accessing Instagram ads. Uh, you're also accessing Messenger and audience network ads, Facebook's audience network, which is ads that appear on websites and apps outside of Facebook, but that are still accessed through that interface. Now, when I say that, I should also add that Facebook doesn't allow political ads on audience network or messenger right now. So it is just Instagram and Facebook. And when we talk about Google, we're not just talking about YouTube, but we're talking about out of YouTube video that runs through Google's ad network, as well as a little like display ads and banner ads that you'll see on websites that you go on everywhere. Uh, Those are often run through Google's network as well. So those are the definitely the two big players and encompass, you know, YouTube, Facebook and Instagram, some of the largest social media platforms out there.
0: Let me just add one thing to what Bridget said. So one of the things that we know from uh, a lot of the literature and political communication is that the audiences that are on platforms really matter to campaigns. And the thing that really sets Facebook apart Um, which we know through studies of campaign strategies, interviews with practitioners, is that Facebook is the one platform that everyone is on. Um, So it's not just, you know, teenagers, but it's also their grandparents uh, who are on Facebook. It is uh, the central location uh, where most people receive political news and information, where they gather uh, to have political conversations, where they interact with journalism Uh, in and around uh, elections, um, where they share materials with their own social networks, et cetera. So it's kind of the master public forum that everyone is on, which explains why campaigns have seen it as such the central site uh, for running political ads, because it's really where their audience is. Other platforms have more specialized audiences. So Twitter, for instance, is made up by hyper-engaged political activists, by journalists, uh, by national media elites. So it reaches a, a, an influential, to be sure, slice of the electorate, but a much more narrow one than, than on Facebook. YouTube uh, skews a little bit younger. Google search is really important, but also tends to cater to more people who are actively searching out uh, political information. So campaigns obviously find that as being appealing in terms of people they want to reach. But it's uh, used in different ways than Facebook is used. So you have to take into account audiences and how they're using these platforms in order to sort of discern uh, why these different platforms are differentially important for um, various campaigns.
1: So apart from those differences in in user bases and uh, usefulness to campaigns, what else were your major takeaways from the study? That's
3: a great question. Uh, one of the things that I was most surprised to see that I hadn't heard being talked about a lot was uh, the bans on state and local advertising. So as states are kind of jumping in where our federal government is not um, and beginning to regulate and make rules around digital political advertising, we're seeing some of those rules leading to bans At the state and local level. So Google is uh, kind of the the quickest to ban state and local political advertising. Um, So you can't run ads for state candidates or local candidates in uh, Maryland, Nevada, New Jersey, or Washington on Google. So that includes YouTube, that includes search, uh, that includes these display ads. Facebook has banned these state and local ads in Washington. Uh, And just to be clear, you can still run ads for congressional candidates for federal congressional candidates in these states, but local candidates and local politicians can't run ads. So that was surprising to me. Um, Reddit has just banned all state and local advertising across the country. I just hadn't seen that talked about. And then I was also a little bit surprised, well, not particularly surprised, but we often talk about all of the ability to to target people within these platforms and their options for political targeting are fairly limited in a lot of ways. They don't have like registered Democrats or registered Republicans. Uh, They give some options to target people who you would assume fit into those buckets. But even that is fairly limited. A lot of it is interest-based. And when you get down to it, if you want to reach people on those kind of political perspectives or identities, then you really need your own data to bring into the platform, your own lists to... Add and things like that.
0: And then I would also sort of add that one of the things that that Bridget and I talked extensively about that I don't think is fully appreciated in the public conversation or in a lot of the various policy literatures that you know we've been immersed in is that the basic way that these platforms define political advertising looks different across different platforms. And this has massive implications. So For instance, Google defines political advertising as ads that reference candidates, government office holders, political parties, and any issue on a state ballot. So it's pretty close to the way the Federal Election Commission currently defines uh, electoral communications. However, Facebook has a much more expansive definition, which includes uh, not only election ads, but broader issue ads relating to ads that reference social issues, elections, or politics more broadly. So this has big downstream implications because, in essence, what Google is doing is then creating policies, whether they relate to micro-targeting, whether they relate to verification, whether they relate to what gets included in political ad transparency databases, to a different set of category of ads than what Facebook is doing. Facebook is more over-inclusive or more inclusive of various forms of advertising that they're going to label as political, whereas Google is much more narrow. And again, that has implications for, let's say, what sorts of advertisers actually have to be verified before they run uh, elections-related communication. That relates to differences in the ways that these ads are categorized when they make their way into ads transparency databases. And there's differences, for instance, in what Uh, Google is going to place restrictions on in terms of micro-targeting than uh, what other companies may also restrict uh, micro-targeting around. So that variation was, was surprising to us, and I don't think has been fully appreciated thus far.
2: Yeah. So that's really fascinating. And this kind of idea of differences between platforms or pressures towards homogenization of policies uh, is kind of a pet interest of mine. We're sort of seeing in a number of areas forces towards uniformity uh, where platforms pick up and use each other's rules uh, in content moderation more generally. But I guess advertising policies are so core to their business interests, that you might have less of that pressure or platforms might be more resistant to pressure to homogenize or have standards because it's something that's so, you know, core to their interests. Do you think that there is benefit in having sort of, you know, different policies across different platforms uh, because they have different affordances and like you said, different audiences and things like that? Or would you like to see more sort of homogeneity and standards?
0: Yeah, so I think I, too, am fascinated by this. I think it's a really interesting question, and it's interesting for all sorts of reasons, namely because what we're seeing is the emergence of a set of platforms that are starting to have, I think, recognition of one another and outside recognition of them as being a distinct field um, that should have a a standard set of expectations for how they relate to the outside world. And I think we're seeing a lot of pressures in the political space explicitly because that is an area um, that not only has, has attracted a lot of public interest, but also a lot of regulatory interests, both in the United States, but increasingly abroad, um, where, you know, Europe uh, has sort of moved out in front of sort of trying to come up with a clear framework for what rules should govern this space. But here's what I would generally say about sort of the, the question of standardization. Broadly, I think it's a good thing when it creates clear standards for things like public disclosure and transparency and clear rules uh, that campaigns and political groups have to abide by. So let me take those sort of each up in, in turn. So I think one of the bigger challenges thus far has been that really... Until after the 2016 election, there were no clear rules around things like public disclosure of paid political speech. Various platforms handled it differently. Rulings by the Federal Election Commission were not entirely clear as to what sorts of ads and what sorts of format those rules would apply to. I think since 2016, we've seen all of the major platforms have a much uh, clearer set of standards um, that, in some ways, mirrored one another about ways in which ads should be disclosed. And I think that's a good thing just for public knowledge about what sorts of electioneering communications are being sent out in public discourse and ways that the public should be informed about who is behind political speech. A second aspect where I think standardization has been good is that all the major platforms, Facebook, Google, uh, Twitter have rolled out efforts around political ad transparency since the 2016 elections. And one of the things I think that that has really done, too, is that it has shined the light onto political advertising strategies. It has shined the light onto the sorts of content and the sorts of appeals um, that political actors are making in the context of paid political speech. I think that has invited researchers in in order to scrutinize the sorts of appeals that are being made uh, by those vying for public office. It has enabled journalists To hold campaigns to account for things like incendiary appeals or things like false speech, and I think one underappreciated aspect of ad transparency databases that's come through uh, various research that I've been doing with my colleagues is that uh, political campaigns themselves love ad transparency databases because they want to know what their opponents are doing. They want to be able to figure out who are they advertising to, what sorts of pitches are they making, and that's in keeping with an important principle that. Uh, they want to engage in counter speech. So if they see that their rivals for some office are making claims about their record uh, that might be damaging to their candidate, they want to speak against that and to get their own message out to counter that in the public sphere. And I think that that's all really important as well. Another thing that we've heard over and over and over again from the campaign practitioners that we uh, conduct research with is that over time, uh, and certainly within 2016, it's been getting better, um, but it's still not there yet, is that it's just a really difficult world to navigate. And this raises all sorts of questions uh, from the campaign practitioner community. So given how many different sets of definitions of things like political advertising there are, rules that apply to one platform but not others, basic questions about how they engage in content moderation on some platforms and not other. It's just a dizzying array of things that has to be kept up with. That means that various consultancies and campaigns have to hire more staffers to comply with various rules across many different platforms. It makes it more confusing for the public, for journalists, for regulators, but also campaign practitioners themselves to know what is the state of play in this space. And that means resources for campaigns that have to be expended in order to figure out how do you navigate this very confusing world. So I think that it helps create a set of standards that are clear, um, that everyone is well aware of, uh, to begin with, and that will then ultimately um, help everyone have an equal playing field uh, in terms of how they approach paid political speech online. Now, I do think that the trade off, and this is something that you mentioned, right, is that given we have such a market diversity in advertising formats, and given that we have such a diversity in ways that members of the electorate can be uh, targeted and that campaigns can can appeal to, that might mean limiting some of that diversity and ultimately limiting some of the efficiencies that we see in digital advertising. But to me, uh, creating clear standards around things like disclosure, like verification, like transparency, and uh, rules across platforms when it comes to things like content moderation, when it comes to things like um, micro-targeting, ultimately have more upsides than downsides when it comes to limiting uh, limiting that diversity. Where that balance gets struck, I think, has to be done in consultation with the various stakeholders um, that play a role in helping to shape platform policies not only the platforms themselves but also regulatory agencies campaigns themselves and a the political practitioner community researchers and journalists um, as well as other public stakeholders that should have an input into this process
1: so there's a, a lot there to to dig into and I'd I'd love to push you more on this idea of transparency so that that's a great description of what transparency can do and how the platforms can enable it. But why is it necessary in the first place, <laughs> right? like How did we get to this place where online advertising lacks this transparency or lacked it before these platforms put these structures into place? So one of the things that really sets, sets
0: I think, our project apart is that we're empirical social scientists. So we want to create a basic set of facts um, that will help inform public debate, that will help inform uh, what campaign practitioners do, what regulatory agencies are discussing, and hopefully what platforms themselves do when they think about sort of what are the rules to best govern this space. I would say one of the challenges from our perspective with respect to transparency is that because there was no requirements by the Federal Election Commission or by other regulatory agencies around transparency when it came to political advertising online, in essence, there were no mechanisms for the public, um, for rival campaigns, um, for parties, for stakeholders such as journalists or regulatory bodies to even see broadly what messages were in the public sphere and how they were being targeted to the public during the course of public elections uh, for office. So, Just to take an example, in 2016, for instance, we simply had no record whatsoever of what the Clinton campaign was putting out on uh, Facebook uh, in terms of paid political speech to target their supporters or people who might be Republicans uh, or people who might have certain issue concerns. The same with Donald Trump. After the election, a number of questions came out in terms of, who was able to buy paid political speech? Uh, Young Me Kim, my colleague at the University of Wisconsin, has done an exceptional array of work documenting how foreign agents purchased uh, political advertising uh, on Facebook during the 2016 election, none of which we have any record of because no political advertisements were being collected and made transparent to the public. At that point, nobody was being verified to run ads on those platforms. Um, they were all sort of in keeping with voluntary rules that advertisers were were forced to adhere to, well, not forced to adhere to because they were able to buy political ads. So the challenge is that we really didn't know what set of messages were in the public sphere. There was no way of holding actors accountable for the sorts of speech uh, that they were engaging in. And the public had no way of knowing what ads were being targeted at them or on what basis and what ads their neighbors, for instance, might have been seeing. Or people in other states might have been seeing in the course of a public election. So, the fact of the matter that just simply from a research perspective, we just didn't know uh, what political advertisements existed. And that led to various groups such as ProPublica trying to reverse engineer and capture ads through screenshots uh, that people might have been seeing, which was deeply unsystematic. Um, So, there was virtually no transparency during the 2016 election. And I think that that. Ultimately, created the possibilities for lots of abuses in the system, whether that came from foreign agents, for instance, buying ads and contravention federal election law, or it led to lots of potentially problematic advertising and speech being aired during the contest of a presidential election. That was simply not held up to public view or public scrutiny in any way, shape, or form. And we could talk more about that in various ways.
3: I just wanted to tag in there. um, When you asked, it was kind of about how did how did we end up with no transparency into these political ads online? Uh, And I just want to kind of make a note that it's not just political ads online that there isn't transparency into. And when we talk about the 2016 election and before, and there being no way to know what messages were being sent out. To kind of tie that back to just the major differences in traditional and digital media and personalized media environments where in, you know, there isn't a mandated archive of political ads that run in newspapers, and there isn't a mandated archive of political ads that run in magazines or on television. But the fact is that these are easier to find, and they're out in the public view, and they're bought by uh, your your demand marketing area by these different media buying terms um, by the magazine or the newspaper that they're running in that are easy to track back. And so when we talk about why there wasn't transparency before, it's a failure of any regulatory regime keeping up with new media. Uh, and it's also not limited to political advertising that when we talk about a lack of transparency, that's a lack of transparency within the entire digital media ecosystem. And you'll see Facebook now in their ad archive and Twitter does this as well. They include political ads, but they also include ads running everywhere more generally. Um, And so just to recognize that this isn't limited to politics, that this is a a greater problem within the industry.
0: And I think to go off what Bridget just said, I think one of the big concerns that the research and activist community has had is that in other mediums, like a newspaper or like on television advertising, messages that were in the public sphere was were de facto public, right? Many different people could see them. In a world of micro-targeting, where you could get down to very narrow slices of the electorate, very narrow and small groups of people, there's much less accountability and publicity built into the process by its very nature. And I think that when pressed, this is the big concern, the idea that very small slices of the public would see very incendiary or false information that was geared specifically to them in ways that would never make it to a broader public light of day by virtue of the medium itself.
2: So can I push you on transparency from the other direction, which is that, I can accept that it's really important, but how effective is it going to be at fixing a lot of these problems? So you talked about sort of enabling counter speech so if someone's micro targeted with one message another campaign will be able to see that and target them with an with another message as as counter speech but you hear a lot from reporters and things that these transparency tools are really difficult to use and also the volume of the amount of ads that are being run means that you know it could be more than a full-time job just to keep track of what's going on does reliance on transparency placed the burden on actors that aren't necessarily going to be able to fully fill that space and that hole that's being created by this
0: yeah this is I think this is a fun question and now we start to get into a set of I think really complicated and and frankly empirically unresolved questions relating to what problems are we solving for and namely what are the big concerns we have about political ads and I think the where you or what you think about sort of what democracy should be sort of leads you to to have various solutions to the problem as well as sort of various definitions of what that problem is but let me address your specific question about transparency alone no it's not enough full stop and the reason it's not enough is because existing transparency efforts don't go far enough i think in our opinion to address what I think are the biggest concerns about political ads in this space from a democratic perspective. And what are those concerns? I think that there's been a lot of conversation in the literature about things like uh, misinformation or disinformation in online ads. I don't necessarily think that that's been empirically studied yet. In fact, that's our next big project here uh, in our Center for Information Technology uh, and Public Life is that we actually want to create an empirical baseline of how many ads contain things like false content versus how many ads are are far more likely to be things like identity-based appeals, based on partisanship, um, based on being members of certain social groups, or I, appeals for mobilization, right? Give us money, uh, help us volunteer, turn out to vote on election day. But I think the bigger issue then comes into the fact of what's of even knowing what sorts of appeals are out there. So, so where transparency I think does help currently is to say certain political candidates, for instance, might be running ads that are very incendiary. So. I think a really big example of where transparency has actually worked has been in the New York Times, did a big expose over the late summer in the wake of the El Paso shooting, where it showed how various uh, rhetoric in the El Paso shooters' manifesto fit with the rhetoric in Trump's campaign ads that were highly targeted and used the rhetoric of things like invasion uh, with respect to immigrants. Now, ad transparency databases worked really well there because what it did is held up the Trump campaign's rhetoric in their campaign advertising up to public scrutiny and said, this is a problem. Using incendiary rhetoric to a uh, directed presumably at people um, who had the most negative views on on immigration in ways, uh, in essence, was um, had the potential to create the capacity for people to take action um, that might lead to things like violence uh, against immigrants. And that was dangerous. Now, I think there's a couple limitations, however, that comes with transparency. First of all, in existing ad transparency databases, we don't have a really good sense of who's actually being targeted or who's being shown ads. So the information, the data that that all the platforms make available in terms of who's seen ads, does not correspond to actual targeting data. It actually corresponds to the categories of data that Facebook and Google wanna make public about who saw ads. So for instance, to use the Trump invasion campaign, it could be that, that the Trump team had a list of, let's say people with the most extreme views on immigration that they used various sources of data to put together, and then ran ads using a custom audience targeted to those individuals and then we're able to feel free to use the most extreme rhetoric because they believe that people seeing those ads were going to be most likely to be responsive to them the challenge is that on facebook we never actually know on what basis that audience was actually constructed and therefore when we see things like targeting data reported we never have an actual sense of the fit between who actually saw ads and who might have been targeted on the basis of what characteristics so that's the first thing i would say and the second limitation of transparency would be There's no effective way to counter political speech. Um, And this goes with targeting, that even if targeting data were made available, you wouldn't likely be able to purchase the same audience and show an ad to that exact same audience based on the way that Facebook's algorithms work when it comes to who actually gets an ad displayed to them. Um, So let me give you an example of this. During the 2016 election, the Trump team discussed how they were running targeted ads aimed at African Americans in inner cities that featured Hillary Clinton's super predator comments from the late 1990s. And the intent of those ads was to make it less likely for African Americans to turn out to vote by basically running a classic negative advertising campaign that said Hillary Clinton is not going to support you if she takes office. Therefore, you shouldn't be excited about voting for her. And The idea was that you would make uh, your opponents, uh, one of your uh, core bases of an opponent, uh, less excited about turning out. Now, this is time-honored negative campaigning, but in a world of television ads, you would be able to see that that ad is running, purchase ads during the same time on the same channels, and be guaranteed to reach roughly the same audience. In a micro-targeting world, there's no way you can engage in effective counter-speech against the same audience. Um, But one of the things that Hillary Clinton would have wanted to do, presumably in 2016, was to purchase that same audience and say, we want to run an ad talking about how amazing we are for the African-American community in order to get them excited about voting for Hillary Clinton. But the problem with digital advertising is that there's no effective ways of doing this. And and that's why we really call for counter-speech. And to be able to run ads to the same universes of voters that are being targeted by a political candidate. And that's why transparency alone doesn't go far enough. That's why you should be able to purchase the same audience as a rival campaign for the same audience in order to uh, rebut basically the claims of a rival or engage in effective counter speech to counter whatever message is coming from a rival.
1: I mean that's a great description of of what microtargeting is and and does, and I think it's interesting in part because there's been a lot of hate for microtargeting recently. I think in part, perhaps, because of impressions that it can do more than it actually does. Uh, for example, in the, the Cambridge Analytica scandal where it seems like a lot of what the company may have been selling and promising this amazing micro-targeting may well have been have been snake oil um but so against that backdrop it sounds like you actually you don't hate micro-targeting <laughs> um so do you think that there, there are benefits that should be maintained or should it just be banned outright, as some people have asked, or perhaps banned in certain areas, right? There have been some suggestions, perhaps it should be banned in the context of political ads.
3: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I think right when we talk about micro targeting, we often talk about it as, or people tend to talk about it as as being perfectly effective, reaching exactly who you meant to reach, uh, having the effects that you intended, and all of those effects being bad and destroying democracy. And that's sort of a, a funny a funny set of assumptions to make with. An advertising tool um, because it is also used to, to mobilize people to bring people um, into the fold of, of campaigns and civic engagement through bringing up the issues that are important to them and showing how those to connect to what's going on in in the world. It goes to fundraising. We see a lot of mobilization and fundraising appeals on uh, on online ads. So when it comes to the idea of, of how do you how do you deal with it? Do you get rid of it entirely? Um, So Google has taken some of the largest restrictions to micro-targeting in political advertising. Uh, They are no longer allowing political advertisers to use list matching. So that's when you have a list of email addresses or phone numbers to upload that and then target those people. Um, So that's often people who've signed up to maybe donate it to you or suggest that they're interested in in reaching those people online, it can also be purchasing email lists from other players and uploading that. Google's also limiting uh, how small of geofences you can target to. So while they're taking this approach of limiting micro-targeting options, Facebook is leaving it wide open. And in a lot of ways, I think that banning micro-targeting from politics doesn't really address the issues that we've been talking about before it. It comes down to what do you actually care about? How do you think that you can improve the health of a democracy? And if that's getting more people involved, then you're going to want micro-targeting capabilities to to pull people into the fold. If you think that these are only being used for anti-democratic purposes, um, then I would, I'd want to see the evidence for that a little more clearly than we have. And while these transparency databases aren't perfect for that, there's an opportunity to look into that and and see more evidence for it than than we have. I, I think banning the tool altogether is going to hurt as many small local campaigns who are using it to reach reach people in a small geographic area, maybe their city, interested in in local policies as much as it would hurt. Uh, national campaigns trying to suppress the vote, and I think those are those are trade offs that you have to consider.
0: Let me just say a few words about just sort of where the research literature is. So, like a lot of micro targeting, and I think this is something that is less appreciated in public discourse, is is being driven by the fact that it's a lot harder to reach the electorate uh, than it once was. So, you know, you could go back even twenty years ago, and in essence, you could reach upwards of 40, 50, 60% of the American public through some nationally televised campaign advertising around big events. If you go back to the 1960s and 70s, you could reach upwards of 90% of the American public just by advertising on the big three networks during prime time. In order to reach that audience share today, you would have to advertise across hundreds of different platforms uh, in hundreds of different ways. So with the very basic shifts in the ways that people consume media and the ways they time shift media, in the ways that they don't tune into live broadcasts at all or only consume TV now through YouTube TV or listen to the radios through Spotify, it's become a lot harder for political candidates to simply reach people. And that's been one of the big drivers behind the use of data in politics and micro-targeting more broadly. Campaigns want to figure out how to best reach people with a message that's likely going to get their attention. And oftentimes what they want to do, as we've seen from the research, is mobilize people they think are going to be on their side. They want to find their people. They want to ask them to donate. They want to ask them to volunteer and they want to turn them out on Election Day. There's some persuasion advertising that comes through at a particular moment in the campaign, but generally it's driven more by mobilization type ads. And research by folks like at the Wesleyan Media Project um, has shown that one of the things that Uh, digital advertising does, as it's done in commercial advertising, too, is it's lowered the cost of engaging in advertising, in part because it raises the efficiency through which you can actually put a message in front of the people who are most likely to see it. And in essence, what this does is it lowers the bar on conducting campaign advertising. So we've seen things like more challengers to incumbents being able to run advertising, more down-ballot campaigns, campaigns that are less well-funded than their opponents are able to more effectively run digital advertising campaigns. The trade-off with that is that because you can speak to smaller audiences, you can make things like more partisan appeals or more incendiary appeals. And I think long-term, the question is, does that amplify various forms of social division? And I would sort of say is that over time, does that amplify um, not only social division, but does that undermine things like the sense of a legitimate opposition, for instance, especially when we don't have counter speech? Does that make more appeals designed to demobilize certain segments of the electorate um, more likely, all of that um, I think are are in the realm of of legitimate democratic concerns. And just one of the thing that to go off of what Bridget said, you know, the same technology that let's say affords let's say Team Trump to run incendiary ads to maybe um, those who are going to be most likely to be responsive to anti-immigrant appeals is also the same technology that enables the NAACP to run an advertising campaign designed to boost voter turnout among black voters in the course of a presidential election. So there are very real trade-offs that would be involved to any of the decisions that these platforms make um, to restrict advertising in one domain, um, because that inevitably will favor some actors and hurt other actors.
3: So, we talk about these voter suppression or these anti immigration uh, appeals being targeted to small segments of the population. Uh, but if you turn on any Trump campaign rally coverage or you look at his Twitter account or other Twitter accounts of um, people in Congress, you see that those appeals being spread through mainstream media as well, and not in micro targeted ads, but to everyone. It uh, it feels like there's some some assumptions being made that these claims are just being made through micro-targeted advertisements or that they're more effective because they're being targeted. Uh, You could target the entire U.S. with anti-immigration appeals and people who have anti-immigrant sentiments would still see them. They would see them if they were micro-targeted. They would see them if they were targeted to everyone. So. I think there's a lot of problems with the greater discourse right now and what we think is maybe problematic within how people are are getting votes that aren't just happening in micro-targeting. They're happening everywhere. And to think that they're more effective when they're micro-targeted is a bit of a leap that I'm not sure I'm willing to make. And that's where the transparency does come in, that if we think that it's important to be able to have counter-speech to challenge those claims then you would want transparency to see when and who they're being made to. But the assumption that they're only being made
0: to specific populations is wrong. Donald Trump has never said anything in an ad that he hasn't been willing to say on on a stage. And I think that's the fundamental reality. I think people have focused on what the platforms are doing because it's a potentially solvable problem, um, particularly if you have certain ideological views. Whereas, you know, correcting for what what Trump is saying uh, in the midst of campaign appeals during a a political rally can only happen through sanction of the Republican Party and that's not a very easily solvable problem.
2: So that's all uh, extremely useful. It strikes me in this conversation talking about platform policies that we might be giving the false impression that platform policies are static, um, which leads into another really important piece of research that you have done. Could you maybe um, unpack for us the notion of platform transience, which you've labeled and and written about and and why it's important?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I think that this is an idea that is going to resonate with anyone who has tried to use a platform for research or for their business or trying to study it. Uh, We see it a lot in the political communication, other academic research talking about validity or generalizability. And so what this paper was about was kind of taking this recognition that the platforms change rapidly. They change their policies and they change also their their capabilities, what you can do with them uh, quite often. And a lot of people have talked about this. And what we wanted to do was kind of blow it out beyond it makes research hard or it makes running a business hard, or it makes studying something hard, and really looking at, okay, but what does it mean more generally and and particularly around elections? If we think of platforms as becoming so popular for both communication between people, but also news distribution systems and where people get their information, the changes in what you can do on a platform and how a platform reaches you that matters. Uh, How politicians are reaching their constituents, when those possibilities of what they can do change, that matters. So when we think of platforms as being these infrastructures for communications, what does it really mean for them to be transient, for their rules and capabilities and features to kind of change out from under candidates and voters in the midst of elections? So that's what this paper was about. And in it, we discussed two cases the first that I'll talk about were were Facebook's voting reminders, kind of this classic thing that happened uh, that was originally really cool. Facebook started giving people reminders to vote, encouraging civic engagement and participation, um, broadly, overall, a good thing. Uh, and like any other product, Facebook rolled it out kind of where and when they saw fit. There wasn't a ton of communication about where it was going next or where it had been enabled. They made changes to it that were just related to design around like A-B testing, different layouts and formats, where it would send people and things like that. And then where the real, you know, you see all these changes happening, it being rolled out in different ways. And then Facebook releases a study that shows that it did significantly improve voter turnout in the U.S., uh, in a U.S. election. And that's when people started to ask more questions about, you know, what countries is it rolled out to? Do people with only the most current version of Facebook see these? What other changes might have made a difference in turnout? And and the Facebook wasn't able to answer these questions particularly well. And this kind of turned into issues of accountability. Um, what we can ask a platform about when we know that it's having an impact on a democratic process and that those constant changes in how it's doing things could be having large effects and we just don't know what they are. And then a second case we talk about is the ad targeting capabilities within Facebook, particularly for political advertisers. And so this one popped up just because it was a broader research project. I had Facebook advertising accounts in a few different countries, um, or based in a few different countries. And in all of them, you were able to target audiences that were very liberal. That was a segment, you could click the button and say, I want to target very liberal people. And you could target liberal people moderates, conservatives and very conservatives. Um, and I had a I had a campaign built out we weren't running it but I had it all built out that was uh, that had those selected And the next time I logged in I just got a notification in Facebook Ad manager saying um, these are being retired. We're taking them away. For our research it was interesting. It was more interesting imagining being a political advertiser maybe going into your election and seeing that one of the primary ways that you were targeting your voters or your constituents, uh, maybe being retired, that it was, was disappearing. And that raised issues of electoral fairness, of who knew about this change before it happened. How were people going to be able to deal with it if you don't have access to uh, voter file data or an email list to upload in instead, then what do you do when this disappears? So this idea of platform transience is about acknowledging that the changes in the features and the policies, not just the features and the policies, but the changes in them themselves, impact the ability of stakeholders to hold platforms accountable. They raise significant issues around electoral fairness, and they also in some ways increase the potential for unequal and particularly unintended Unequal political information environments that folks might end up having to target people who they don't want to with their ads uh, because the options that they intended to use aren't there anymore, or that you have some people seeing these voting reminders um, in one country who a different group will see them in another. If you don't log on that day, you don't see it at all.
0: So- and I mean, I think that in the fact that, like as as Bridget highlights, there was there was no public justification for the change. There was no real transparency for the change. And as with any change in the middle of an election, it raises fundamental questions of electoral fairness. Does it benefit some actors to the exclusion of others? If we want a world where everyone competes knowing the rules of the game and the rules of the game are not tilted in one direction or another when it comes to a campaign or another political actor, these changes that are ongoing, that are not disclosed, that are very rarely justified uh, or made public, raise fundamental issues with respect to the basic fairness of elections.
1: So so with all that on the table, um, what are the both of you watching most closely in the lead up to the 2020 election?
0: So we think all the major changes with respect to the platforms heading into this presidential cycle are likely done. I think we went through an extraordinary period of change over the last few months of 2019. Uh, my sense is that things are probably set for now, uh, heading into the the presidential, barring something unforeseen, and there's always the possibility for something unforeseen uh, happening. But I suspect what you'll see is that after the 2020 elections, uh, the major platforms will sit down, will evaluate, we'll engage in some uh, taking stock as to what worked and what didn't work. And try to come up with sort of what should be the rules going forward and and where do they need to change. I do suspect we'll continue to see ongoing improvements with respect to the ads transparency databases. A number of people have pointed out to your question earlier, like various limitations with respect to categories of data made available, the usability of these systems. Um, the ways that they support or do not support things like real transparency in terms of how journalists and, and researchers can actually use them. We're actually rolling out a project now um, that will consume us over the next couple of months where we want to quantify the amount of misinformation and disinformation by political candidates uh, that's being run on political advertising. And then also to study, I think something that's been um, less remarked upon is The nature of basically identity appeals to the electorate and things like mobilizational appeals to the electorate and want to compare um, what's more prevalent and and hopefully with what consequence. And we've actually been using the ad transparency database to do that. And it's it's really difficult, um, particularly for non uh, technically skilled users. The number of duplicates that exist in these systems are really problematic to work with. So um, I suspect we'll, we'll see changes in that area going forward. And then more broadly, I think all the ad policies will take place against the broader debate that we're having on the campaign trail, that we're having in regulatory communities, that we have with various forms of legislation that's been proposed, which is, What should be the rules in this space going forward? And I think we'll continue to see those conversations develop. Again, we hope from our perspective as social scientists that all the conversations take place in mind with the empirical sort of baseline about what's the current state of play. And we certainly hope that platforms will be much better about being clear about what their policies and procedures actually are. And that they will be much more public facing in terms of simply saying, here's the current state of play with respect to how we define political advertising. And in terms of the sorts of categories of information that that we require to be made transparent to the public in terms of the restrictions we have on things like targeted advertising and the like, because we do put political speech in a different category than commercial speech, um, because it is different selling a president than selling Coke. And there should be, I think, a clear set of rules that are made available to the public and a clear set of expectations uh, that we have for how platforms should govern themselves in this space.
1: All right. Well, let's leave it there. Thanks, both of you, for coming on. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's mini series on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Bridget Barrett and Daniel Grace. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Jacob Schultz. And our producer is Jen Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast in the podcasting app of your choice. And as always, thanks for listening.